0: Acts 9, 1 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters, oops, to the synagogues in Damascus. So if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you are coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell off Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food he regained his strength. Father we love you. We are thankful for your word that it's a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path and we give you this time. We give you this time in history that you have planted us here together. Father we ask you just for the scales to fall off of our eyes, Lord, that you would speak through John, that his tongue would be a a pen of a ready writer, that we would have eyes to see and hearts to understand what you have for us today. We receive, Lord, all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen, thanks, Janelle. Y'all can be seated. I wanna invite up before I hop in Nina Kazarian. There she was. If you got my email, you know Nina, as of tomorrow, is our newest staff member at Cornerstone. So this has been uh, something God's been building and and getting us ready for for the last couple of years. So Nina, we're so delighted to have you. So you can be seated. Nina's going to be doing a lot of things in a church plant. Everybody wears lots of hats Nina will be uh, managing social media and web stuff, and then through official and unofficial channels, just helping to build friendships and community in Cornerstone. So, from apprentice groups to just like, oh my gosh, Kyle, you really need to know Mike, okay? You know, making those connections. Nina's awesome. This week, Todd and I were having a conversation about, I mean, Todd and I have got eight years together. We've been working, and so there are inside jokes, there's humor that has developed, and we thought, what are those? books that Nina really needs to read so that she's like, oh, that's what they're talking about? Or what are those movies that she needs to watch so that she can just understand us? So uh, the first one we came up with was uh, Fletch featuring Chevy Chase. Um, So after this, I'll be having a steak sandwich and a steak sandwich. Uh, So if anybody knows Fletch, we talked about Wayne's World, which is a pretty important uh, uh, movie for us. So if you want to understand us, watch Wayne's World. But then the, the other one that we talked about was Moneyball. Anybody seen Moneyball? So based on a book, uh, based on a true story, uh, Brad Pitt uh, plays this guy, Billy Bean, who's the general manager of the Oakland Athletics. And uh, he's managing this team, and they've just lost three of their best players. And um, in one of my favorite scenes in like any movie of all time, Billy Bean, played by Brad Pitt, is down, meeting with all the scouts. Uh, talking about how they're going to begin to replace uh, these three players. But Brad Pitt wants to make sure that as they're approaching this, they've got the problem framed in the right way so that they're solving the right thing. And he says, well, what's the problem? And so the head scout jumps in and he goes, well, the problem is we've got to replace Jason Giambi and yada, yada, yada and all these other guys. Nope, that's not the problem. He goes, someone else, what's the problem? Well, the problem is we've got this budget to replace these guys, yada, yada, yada. He said, nope, that's not the problem. Well, they said, well, then what's the problem? The problem is, there are rich teams, and there are poor teams, and then there's 50 feet of garbage, and then there's us. (laughs) And you've got to have, you have to frame the problem in the right way if you're going to solve it in any way that is effective and lasting. So we're all here at a church on a Sunday morning. Got banners and things to say, we want to be a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. I want to ask this question, what is the problem for which the gospel is the solution? What is the question for which the gospel is the answer? You thought about that? What is the problem for which the gospel is the solution? Is it a personal problem? Life is hard and we just need, you know, Christianity, the gospel, to help us get through the day. One of my favorite songwriters, Connor Oberst, has a bit, there are hundreds of ways to get through the day, just find one. Is Christianity just one of the ones, just help you kind of crutch through life? Is it a personal problem? Uh, Is it a moral problem that, like, we're all just such big screw-ups, we're making such big mistakes, we need the gospel to, like, whip us into shape so that we make better choices? Is the problem for which the gospel is the solution a moral problem? Is it a political problem that the world just isn't fair, and so we have the gospel, we have Christianity and religion as a way of guiding us toward writing our institutions so that the world will be a more fair place? What is the problem for which the gospel is the solution? You could answer this in a number of different ways, but uh, a swing this morning. The problem is that there's a virus. There's a virus that has infected every human heart, and this virus leads us to behave in ways that are ultimately self-destructive. And there's tons of evidence. You've got genocide. You've got war. You've got violence. You've got the abuse of power. You have the big ones that, you know, we all think of that make headline news. But there's also evidence that this virus has, has seeped down to the level of more micro level of affecting our interpersonal relationships. It's equally sinister. They're not quite as visible or doesn't quite show up on the newspapers. From the passive aggressive destruction of relationships that all of us, those behaviors that we practice from time to time, from that passive aggression to greed, to an addiction to consuming objectified images of other people, to just like saying, I'm going to just disengage and choosing to withdraw from society or from others, from relationships, to the withholding of good when it's in the power for us to do it, to unforgiveness, to deceit, and to dishonesty, to ego. We've all been infected by the same virus, and none of us can provide our own care, our own antidote. And the prognosis for all of us with this virus is the same. It's going to kill us. It's going to cost us everything, and we see evidence of this everywhere. There's a theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr who said, original sin is the only empirical, ver- empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. Grab a book of theology, you can just grab the newspaper or talk to your friends or your neighbors or your family members and verify. This one just so happens to be true. You read the news, consider the problems of the world, talk with the people that you're close to, and you can see, oh my gosh, they've been infected too. And think about the world. Think about that relationship that is just driving you crazy right now, or that thing, that cause that's breaking your heart. Think about it through the lens of this virus and tell me if it doesn't help make sense of the world. What's the problem? This sickness is killing us. It's robbing us of our joy and beauty and the vitality and the, the, of relationships. We're not enjoying life as we were supposed to. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. It's not strictly a moral problem. But dead people live. Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. You could say this virus is here, and it's stealing, and it's killing, and it's destroying. But Jesus Himself has come so that we can have life, and have it an abundantly, a flourishing life. That's the purpose for which Jesus came, so that we could experience life. In Acts chapter nine, uh, that Janelle just read, we find this particularly dangerous strain of the virus that we've been talking about, and it's dangerous because it's got a religious flavor. And, you know, think about some of the meanest people you've met in your life. They were church people, right? Some of the, some of the most dangerous like, uh, ways that we see this virus is through religious versions of it. And this was definitely Saul. Its effects are clear. For Saul, he was systematically hunting down the church. He was hunting down people who said that they loved Jesus, who were following in the way of Jesus. And and he went so far as to leave Israel and to go into Syria, to the city of Damascus, where he heard there was a group of Christians who were meeting there. And he went from his home, he went toward Syria, and on on the road to Damascus, he has this incredible encounter with the Lord Jesus. He's thrown to the ground, he's blinded by a light, and he hears a voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And we see as the chapter continues and as the book continues, you can read the entire New Testament and see God has been working on a plan to rescue this guy because he has a very particular purpose for him. If you've been around at all at Cornerstone the last 10 weeks, we've been telling the story of Acts. And it's not just like for this like because we got to talk about something. It's not just Bible trivia. We're 26 weeks into being a church. Uh, half a year into being a church, we made it. We got our half a year token, I think. And, uh, but we're trying to learn what on earth does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to do this effectively and faithfully to the calling of Jesus? And so we're going back to the story of the birth of the church in the book of Acts and finding uh, blueprints for what it means to be church. And it's hard and it's complicated, but we see God do some glorious and beautiful things in the first church. The disciples were freaked out as anybody and and incredulous as anyone when Jesus was raised from the dead. And in Acts chapter 1, he promised them that something big was about to happen. He said, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you so that you can be my witnesses. This story is going to continue when the Holy Spirit comes. He said, go and wait in Jerusalem. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended and these disciples who'd previously been hiding for fear of the people who'd killed Jesus were emboldened and went out of the streets and were preaching the gospel telling the story and the good news of Jesus. And on that day, 3,000 people came to believe in Jesus. We saw this amazing transformation that the church, who had been you know, uncertain of themselves, all of a sudden they're behaving in unity of mind and heart. Do you know how difficult it is to get a group of people going in the same direction together? If you've led an organization or you've led a cheer squad or you've led anything... You know how difficult it is to get a group of people all going the same direction together, and yet we see the church behaving in one mind and one heart. We see people who were previously stingy, acting with an attitude of generosity and selling off property and giving it to the church so that there would be no one in their community with need. There are people who were blind, who were seeing, there are people who were lame, who were walking, and all of them were amazed at the stuff that God was doing in their community. Now, you could say, if a bit cynically, that all of this was happening, happening among a group of people who were like primed to be responsive to the message. You could say, if a bit cynically, that these were seekers. These were people who really, like, like God had already laid the groundwork. These were easy wins, and so we shouldn't be too encouraged or impressed by 3,000, 5,000, 8,000 being early adapters to this kind of ministry because, hey, they'd all seen Jesus. But with Saul, it's a very different story. With Saul, we're not talking about someone who was already fairly keen on the whole Jesus story and just happened to be a little later to the party. We have Saul who was not seeking the way of Jesus. He was seeking to annihilate those who belonged to the way of Jesus until the day that God threw him on his knees and blinded him so that he could learn to see Now, imagine what it would be like if tomorrow, on Monday morning news, you wake up, you turn on the radio, or you watch TV, you read the newspaper, you check Twitter, however it is you get your news. And I want you to imagine that tomorrow, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan calls a big press conference, and everybody's there. And he says, everyone, I want you to know that after much thought, I've decided that I'm wrong in my politics, and today I am renouncing my membership to the Republican Party, I'm turning in my Suburban, and I'm getting a Prius, and I'm putting a, st- a bumper sticker on the back, and I'm going to join the Democratic Party today, and I just wanted to let you know. Unlikely to happen. But the, tomorrow afternoon, it happens that Nancy Pelosi, who's the House Minority Leader, calls a press conference, and she gets everyone there, and they're still freaked out about what happened to Paul Ryan, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, I have to let you know I've been doing some thinking and some soul searching, and I've concluded that I'm wrong In my my politics so I'm turning in my Prius and I'm getting a Ford F-150 and I'm joining the National Rifle Association and today I renounced my membership of the Republican Party and I'm or the Democratic Party and now I'm a lifelong Republican now what would happen if that were to happen imagine how freaked out and angry so many people would be if that were to happen it's never gonna happen but if it did happen That would require a serious explanation because people don't go from this direction 75 miles an hour to that direction 75 miles an hour until something meaningful and powerful has happened. And that's precisely what's happened with Saul where he was hunting down the church of Jesus Christ and then all of a sudden he wasn't. And were we to have kept reading past verse 19, we see that almost immediately, he's in the temple, he's in the synagogues throughout the country, contending that Jesus is the Messiah, the hope of Israel, and the hope of the world. All of a sudden, within heartbeats, we see this massive, massive life change. Saul, who becomes known as Paul and writes most of the New Testament, tells his own story in a letter to a pastor named Timothy. This is how Paul tells his story, 1 Timothy 12 through 16. Paul said, I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who's given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service of all people. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord Jesus was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that bears full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. What was it that changed Saul's life so that he went from this direction To this direction. It was the mercy and the kindness of God expressed through Jesus. It was the mercy in giving him the exact opposite thing that he deserved. Why did God do this for him? Twice in this little passage, he says, I was shown mercy, and then he explains why. Why did God do this for him? First, says God knew that he was acting in ignorance, he didn't have a clue what he was doing. And we don't either. Uh, when, when Saul was there uh, on the day that Stephen was stoned, people laid their cloaks at his feet. And Stephen, the first martyr of the church as he stood there with a vision of Jesus, proudly uh, being loyal to the gospel to the point of death, prayed for those who were there stoning him. And I think even for Saul who was standing in their company. what did he pray? He said, Father, forgive them. Why? Because they don't have a clue what they are doing. God showed Paul mercy, he said, because he was ignorant. But the other reason is this, so that he could be an example of God's patience for the rest of us. Well, if he can save him, well, then maybe he can save me. And there's good news for us in this. That God is patient with us. God knows what we're made of. God knows how ignorant we are, how blind we are to the bigger reality of everything that he's doing. God has patience because he knows that we're doing our best, but we don't know very much. We're ignorant. But there's another little nugget in this, in this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy that could unlock a lot for us and our behavior. It's we're figuring out what on earth it means to be Christ church in Tulsa, Oklahoma at this day and time. Uh, verse 15 Paul's coaching Timothy a lot. A lot of times in in Paul's letters to Timothy and to Titus, he gives them, like, quotes. It's like, these are the ones you keep in your back pocket. Or he'll he'll command him like, I'm teaching you to be a pastor. This is important. He says, this is a a phrase, a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. In other words, hold on to this one. It's really good. You're going to use this. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He says, hold that one in your back pocket and use it regularly. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Let me ask you, think about your, the relational networks to, to which you belong. Your family, your friendships, your coworkers, workers and, and even and especially the church. Think about your relationship systems. How would it change our friendships our families, or our church, if every single one of us adopted the mentality that our own sin was the greatest threat to our community life? How would it change your marriage? How would it ta- change your closest friendships, your family, your neighborhood, your coworkers, your relationship with other people in the church if, you, if we all adopted the attitude that my sin, not just John Odom's, but for me, John Odom, but for you as well, that my sin and your sin was the greatest threat to our community life? In Cornerstone, we're adopting an attitude that our own sin is the greatest threat to community life. We're adopting this posture of seriousness and responsibility for our own sin and naming our own virus as as it's affected each one of us. We're going to have a posture of seriousness about that, but a posture of compassion and mercy to everyone else as they struggle with theirs. Within Cornerstone, we're adopting an attitude of seriousness and responsibility for our own sin, but adopting a posture of mercy and compassion for the sinfulness of others. And this is perfectly aligned with the posture that the church took towards Saul. In this, Ananias, who's surely freaked out as, as I'll get out about, Saul welcomes him. Stephen prayed for him. If we were to have kept reading, we'd see how Barnabas advocated for him, saying, no, trust me, his life's been changed. Trust me, he's a different person altogether. You're good. Stephen prayed for him. Ananias welcomed him. Barnabas advocated for him. And Jesus pursued him. Nobody has ever been yelled into the kingdom. Nobody has ever been shamed into God's kingdom but people have been loved into God's kingdom. They have been welcomed into God's kingdom. We're not gonna see the kind of renewal and restoration. We're not gonna see like life-changing baptisms in our church if we have the, that old, tired, crusty attitude toward everyone else's sins and a lack of responsibility for our own. So we're adopting this posture of seriousness and responsibility, each of us for ourselves, a posture of compassion and mercy and prayer for everyone else's, because we know what it's like to be apart from Jesus. What is the problem for which the gospel is the solution? Paul said this in his letter to the Ephesians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's not because you're impressive. It's not because you're moral. It's not because you're willing to be a church person. It's by grace you've been saved. Do we not know it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance? And so we want to be people of kindness, people of compassion, who love and welcome and pray and advocate for people to come into God's family. Earlier this year, I got to meet a man named Michael. And we were messaging each other on Facebook this week. He lives in Colorado. At at a young age, Michael um, uh, became a neo-Nazi, And his heart was so full of hate and so full of fear, and he gave himself into it completely. His body, his chest in particular, and his arms were covered in tattoos. And right at the center of his sternum, as bold as could be, was a swastika, right on his heart, right in the middle of him. There were images and there were words that that showed to the world the hatred that he had for an entire group of people. He started rallies he attended, he went to the Capitol and advocated with his message. He says with a tremendous amount of shame that he did things to hurt, hurt people. And it wasn't until he was assigned a, a probation officer who was an African-American woman that God began to change his heart. She didn't yell at him. She didn't scold him. She didn't shame him. She was kind to him. Through kindness, through friendship, Through through, uh, affection, through treating this man with dignity, God began to soften his heart and he was loved out of his hatred. A group uh, volunteered to pay for his tattoos to be removed and Michael is a different person. And Michael's learning what it means to be truly alive. Michael's learning what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Michael's learning what it means to take hold of the life that's truly life. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. And so I'm going to take responsibility. I'm a sinful person. I am a broken person. I'm learning to be made well in Jesus. I hope that you could could say that too. Jesus Christ is the only chance we have in this world of being well. I want you to know him. I want you to be well, to learn to follow in the way of Jesus. It's counterintuitive. It's something we have to learn as students, as apprentices, and that's where we want to go as a church. Learning together to be shaped by the gospel, unlearning those rhythms that, and those behaviors that lead toward destruction and learning together the way of Jesus that leads to life. Let's pray together. It's one thing to say that you you love us when we're on our best behavior. God, but we remember the words of Scripture. God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, He died for us. Father, forgive us. We don't know what we are doing. Another there are people in our community and certainly in the city of Tulsa who are familiar with the language of God and the things of God, but whose hearts are so far from God. People who may not behave quite in the way that we see Saul doing it, but in their hearts are judgmental and legalistic and mean. Well, Jesus, I pray for those brothers and sisters in the room whose hearts you've not yet won, that they would surrender, that you'd cause them to be disciples of Jesus, that you'd cause them to turn around. God, for those people in the room who ultimately, like honestly just don't know you, don't know your story, they've not been um, you know, particularly open to it in the past, maybe they've even been closed, and like I just don't want to know anything about it. I pray that they would sense you knocking on the door of their heart, calling their name. Increase their knowledge, increase their openness. Help them to cooperate with you. And Lord, for those people in the room who are just open, yeah, sure, whatever you got, they just don't know you. Jesus, I pray that like Saul, they'd have an encounter with the Lord Jesus. They would know that you know their name and you're Jesus who wins them over. For all of us, help, to be, help us to be people who are, who are learning this story, being shaped into people of kindness, responsibility for our own sin, and compassion for the sinfulness of others because we know what it's like to be dead apart from Christ. And as we come to the table, we just say we need your grace and your kindness and patience again to help us to do that and to help us to obey. So thank you that all that you require of us, you've provided.